Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Nerds of Legend. Uh, I'm your host, or I'm Ben. Uh, next to me is Brian. You may be noticing we're missing a few people this week. Uh, life took over for Brendan and Joel and Missy, and so they're not available. And we're very happy to let everyone know that uh, that Joel and Missy's baby arrived safe and sound uh, last Thursday early morning. Uh, her name is Elizabeth, and we'll be very excited to meet her uh, once uh, everything is kind of settled down. Uh, and uh, but this week we'll be here to talk about uh, the Hellbound Heart by Clive Barker. Uh, Br Brian is, of course, a horror connoisseur. I am not so much. I have only read the book. And while as Brian, obviously, as you can see, is holding the puzzle box itself in his hands and is wearing a merch shirt. So we're, we're both going to have some interesting perspectives because he knows a lot more about this than I do. But I only have the I, the only thing I knew about uh, the only thing I knew about the Hellraiser series prior to reading this book was something about Pinhead, Hell, and a, there's a box somewhere in there. But uh, we'll we'll get going, and I'll let Brian take it away. Uh, first and foremost, uh, I want to let all of our viewers know that we are not going to do a spoiler-free section of this particular review. One, because the actual novel itself is actually rather you know short, and therefore uh, a non-spoiler section would essentially boil down to this is character X, and they have motivation X, and then yeah. like we'd run out of topics really fucking fast. Um, so we're not going to be doing that. We're going to be jumping straight into spoiler territory. However, one thing that I will give uh, our listeners a little bit of uh, forewarning on is uh, what we will do is give the book a rating first. And that way, you know, you, you can know before you click away, whether or not it's something you even want to uh, seek out. So, Ben, what's your honest rating for this book? Scale to one to ten. Um, so I'm not a big horror fan. Uh, this this book was uh, wasn't it, it was pretty good in my opinion for for what it is. Uh, going from that, I'll probably give it like a six or seven. You know, it's not something I'd typically pick up and read, but. I can I can see the enjoyment in it. I used to I used to read like the no sleep stuff all the time on Reddit, so I can kind of like in that horror you know sort of thing. So it was interesting. Uh, there were some problems I had with it, which we'll get into, but that's kind of where I'm I'm landing on my rating here. So I personally would probably uh, agree with you and give it about a, a seven or maybe an eight at the mm -hmm. high end. Um, I think that Clive Barker is a really good writer mm -hmm. and I think that he does a good job of giving you enough detail to kind of put you in the moment mm -hmm. of what's going on with the characters. And I really respect that. Yeah. Um, as far as the actual uh, content of it, uh, I also think that it's a more subtle read that might be lost on some people sort of thing. Uh, because if you're expecting, like, the same sort of, like, horror schlock of, like, oh, there's, you know, some sort of, like, immortal monster or something like that, 
you're going to be kind of disappointed. This follows the same sort of like Lovecraftian sort of uh, method, wherein like, you know, a lot of the more terrifying stuff is, you know, in the subtext, if you will. You know what I'm saying? Like the, the big horror movie villains of this particular piece are Frank and Julia. So if you're looking for, you know, a lot of Cenobites or whatnot, I would recommend going to uh, read the Hellraiser comics. Those are actually a lot better in terms of like getting your pure Cenobite, you know, fix in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're looking for that in this, you're going to be kind of disappointed, mm-hmm. especially since, as we'll get into, they don't really do anything. Uh, <laughs> the one thing that I will say is that regarding the new uh, Hulu series that's going to be coming out on the subject and whether or not, because uh, there is some relevancy here. And of course you might not know this because you're not a horror like buff, um, but there has been some discord about uh, them taking Douglas Bradley and replacing him with uh, a woman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are some people who are kind of up in arms about that, but there is a little bit of like precedence for that when it comes to this particular book, because in this, Pinhead is described as female. Mm-hmm. So I guess, uh, you know, mystery solved on that one. Oh, so is Pinhead the one that actually like took him to the, took, took Frank finally after his like little trip. <sighs> In both uh, the book and the movie, Pinhead is kind of like the lead Cenobite. So much so that in the movie, he's not even called Pinhead. Mm-hmm. In the credits, you can see just lead Cenobite, Douglas Bradley. Okay. And then like he only actually gets the Pinhead moniker in the second movie. Hmm. That was just uh, like for both this him. and also the movie, he's not really given a name. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess uh, shall we do a little sort of synopsis for our for our listeners real quick? So go ahead and give them the the rundown. So pretty much this book is uh, you have this guy Frank, who's basically a complete hedonist. He's uh, he's experienced everything that every pleasure imaginable. He's basically a horn dog that's like done a bunch of drugs and is looking for his next big high. And he ends up solving what's known as the Le Marchand configuration because there's it's sort of a mythological importance that if you can solve this puzzle box, you are you will be visited by the Cenobites who will give you pleasures beyond your imagination. Little does he know, however, that basically the Cenobites are basically yep. from there's- hell. <laughs> and uh they they're, yeah. they're sort of they're otherworldly immortal beings that don't really recognize the difference between pleasure and pain and uh their idea of what gives people pleasure is probably you're not going to like it so uh they 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 and that's the last time you see uh Frank until later on in the movie where we are replaced with a woman by the name of it escapes me at the moment. I can't remember what's the f- first woman's name. The uh, Julia. Frank, Julia. Yeah. So the, you, it follows the point of view of Julia, who uh, is a woman in an unhappy marriage. Uh, she joins uh, 
who you find out is married to actually Frank's brother, and they move into Frank's house where they find a room, which is basically where Frank was taken in the first place. And he goes to, uh, she's in an unhappy marriage. She's looking for some sort of way out. She had had a brief tryst with Frank in the past before she was married to Rory. And she finds Frank after there's basically some, there's stuff with blood going on where like it allows Frank to manifest. And so she goes on a murder spree where she sacrifices men to Frank by seducing them to her home and killing them. And then Frank basically steals their life energy and is able to come more and more into the world, into the physical world. Whereas he first starts, he's basically just like eyes and a spine, like nailed to the wall. And then as this progresses, um, another woman finds out that what's going on. She's confronted by Frank uh, her name is uh, Christy, and she's essentially the protagonist of this book. Uh, she's attacked by Frank, ends up in the hospital, but not without escaping with the box, which she then solves. And in order to prevent the saint, her from getting the same fate as Frank, she uh, she promises to expose Frank to the Cenobites and find him. And then we have a whole action sequence where she finds out that Frank has finally come into full being and has taken Rory's skin and assumed his identity, whereupon they try he tries to kill her, not be, right before killing Julia, and then Julia gets Frank to reveal that he is indeed Frank and not Rory. Cenobites arrive, mess him up, and uh, Christy escapes with the box. That's sort of a quick synopsis of this little novella. Did I miss anything, Brian, you think? Uh, no, that's pretty apt. I will say that uh, if people are familiar with the movie, they should understand that uh, Rory in this version is the movie's version of Larry. Aside from that, uh, it's a pretty faithful shot-for-shot retelling if you will and this is because uh, Clive Barker was instrumental in both the book and the movie obviously he wrote the book but when it comes to the movie that most people are familiar Hellraiser uh, he was very instrumental to the screenplay process so uh, in both book and movie they are very similar Um, so one of the things that I think we can talk about then are some of the differences between the two, uh, because I'm sure that a lot of people are going to kind of like wonder like, okay, well, if it's so similar, then are there any differences? And of course there are, uh, first and foremost, as we mentioned, uh, Douglas Bradley, pay, uh, played pinhead in the movie, whereas, uh, in the book pinhead is described womanly, if you will. Um, so there's that. Also, the female Cenobite from the movie is just kind of like merged with Pinhead in this one. Like they're both just basically one of the same. So like, uh, and also, uh, the Chatterer and Butterball that are kind of like fan favorites and whatnot. Um, those are given a far less significant role to the point where like they're 
basically invisible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're, you're again, if you're looking for your Hellraiser fix in particular, I recommend the comic over this. Um, at any rate, uh, another key difference that we can kind of talk about. And from what I understand, this is the point where we've lost our friend Joel. <laughs> yeah. Is the resurrection <laughs> scene. Or I'm sorry, not the resurrection scene. The scene where Larry is torn apart in the first place. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, not Larry. Where he's taken by the second. Uh, yeah, where Frank is taken to hell yeah. the first time. Yeah. Yeah. And um, now, for those of you familiar with the movie, Frank is taken to hell almost instantly. It's like first five, ten minutes of the movie, bam, he's fucking dead. In the book, it actually draws that process out quite a bit uh, to the point where like, he's uh, discovering things about the box. He's talking with the guy who tells him all about it, like the, the German guy who sells it to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's learning a lot more about it than he did in the movie. Uh, which is partially be- uh, by design, I think, mm-hmm. because I think what Clive Barker really wanted to do was he wanted to show that uh, Frank was dead set on solving yeah. the box and like, you know, damn the consequences, you know, fuck mm-hmm. it. Like, I'm just going to, you know, go for it. Sort well, of it's, it, it's interesting because it seems like he was, Frank was misled from a certain perspective about what the Malamashan configuration brings. Uh, he was promised, you know, pleasures beyond his imagination, which I guess, Technically, he got, but... Uh, I mean, there is that whole scene where he's torn apart in the first place. Yes, so basically what Brian is slightly tiptoeing around is the Cenobites arrive after the box is solved, and Frank is basically exposed to every sense and memory that he has uh, experienced in his entire life. It's sort of like a judgment sequence, if anything. He's, uh, he's you know, every scent, every every sound, every smell, every taste, every sight that he's ever experienced, uh, he he ex- experiences, but dialed up to, like, 11,000, so to the point where he's completely, like, it's, it's pleasure, but at the same time, immense pain, because it's like every light is blinding, every, every stench, every smell is so potent that it is, uh, over, uh, you know, become... Becomes rank. It's like you know, even if like you you enjoy like a certain perfume smell, if it if you like spray yourself in the nostrils with it, it's gonna like you're gonna hate it. You know, it's <laughs> you know, and it's uh, he ends up after he's as he in order to try to like relieve the pain he's feeling, he ends up furiously masturbating to the point where he and then the the orgasm he feels causes him to basically just collapse and pass out at which point he wakes up to the sight of pinhead now why is this important why are we talking about this mm-hmm. well this actually gives us one of the major differences from the book <laughs> to the movie uh mm-hmm. and not just the fact that like you know the movie obviously wasn't going to show fucking frank mass like just furiously you know going at it um the big thing about this is it helps to kind of like re-establish 
how exactly Frank comes back. In the movie, uh, fans will know that, like, Larry, or Frank's brother, however you want to, like, you know, say it, uh, Rory in the book, uh, goes up and is bleeding on the attic floor. And in the movie, that's enough to bring Frank back. But when it comes to the book, some of what Frank had left behind in terms of, like, his physical essence uh, mm-hmm. is the thing that mixes with the blood and then kind of allows him to come back. Gives him, like, a foothold. hmm Yes. So that is one of the reasons why that whole sequence, like he needs a re- way to come back. And so leaving a part of himself behind mm-hmm. is an easy way to do that. Yeah. In the movie, that's not what happens. It's basically just like, why is he back? Well, because he died there. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's a very weird scene. And it's just, I, I feel like one of the things that puts me off with this, with this, with this book is, a lot of times the motivation of characters isn't super gone into you. Like it's a novella. It's a short book. Um, you know, it just seems like at a certain point, like I guess once he solves the box, it's obviously beyond the point of no return, but like Frank in, in the discussion, Frank is obviously like he's, he realizes he's like probably been misled and instead of like, you know, maybe backpedaling a little bit, he still agrees to like whatever the deal is of like telling them that he wants extreme pleasure or whatever, even though it's obvious, probably should be obvious that that is not what he's going to be getting. Obviously, he's he saw that they stepped out of hell. They didn't step out of some paradise. He thought he was going to be, you know, he... he he thought, like, by summoning the Cenobites, he was going to just basically be, like, given a harem of, like, uh, you know, basically, you know, bimbos that would, you know, get, give his every pleasure. But instead, he's he's confronted by these misshapen beings that uh, look like they've, you know, they've been had chains and pins sewn through their flesh and scars and all kinds of horrible, you know, tortures put upon them. And instead he like just I don't care. My dick's tired. I want I want more pleasure. I don't care. And he just kind of forges ahead. You know, it's Frank, he's a bad guy. Um and we'll get into it with a little bit with Julia and her motivations make even less sense than what we than what we saw in the uh in the uh, with Frank, but well, uh, and th- this is where I have to kind of disagree here because I think uh, that her motivations, while they are uh, a bit sketchy in the book, because uh, another big difference between both book and movie uh-huh. is that in the book, the events that take place with Julia are described far more uh, non-consensual in nature. Or at least that's how they start. Hmm? uh, So, like, it basically describes her... So, basically, uh, Frank, she's at some party at this house, and, like, she runs into Frank, and Frank basically, like, jumps her bones immediately, 
with a ferocity that if it was not consensually would be by some considered rape, I believe is almost a direct quote. Um, yeah, that's uh, kind of what I was going with there. Yeah, but but uh, the thing about the book is that this is memory is described uh, as something that she has kind of like warmed to over time because now she's in this loveless relationship with Rory. Uh, and so, you know, now she, looking back at it, she misses Frank. That's, that's, that's the thing with like, Ro like I don't like her motivations for why she's doesn't like this guy. Don't mesh. It's like, it's just because she doesn't like, like, yes, it's like a loveless ma marriage, but it's just like, it's boring. Therefore, I'm going to talk to a freaking like horror show of a eyes and a spine and attempt to do some go straight to murdering people. Like, just there's no like sort of they they basically like skip over like any kind of discussion that happens that would have happened and just go straight to like I'm gonna murder some bitches. Well, I mean, like, I think you know, I don't I don't think her like her whole thing was like. Rory, you know, like, Rory's just kind of, like, there, you know, he's, like, a maybe, like, he's just cast as a boring guy, there's not, she doesn't have any sort of, like, never has any sort of thing where, for, like, why she doesn't like, like, why she's so, you know, sort of, uh, like, disgusted by him, even, it's just sort of up in the air, and I didn't... That's kind of the point though i mean i i think that you know just him being so boring so for lack of a better word vanilla when it comes to like because she had her, his brother and his brother was nothing like him and i think that that has in a way kind of colored her perception on like you know what it should be sort of thing mm -hmm. like uh almost like the the kind of people who once they have something and then like you, they go, you go down to something else. It's like, it's not the same anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like you've gone to such an extreme that like everything else seems dull now. Mm. I mean, again, I, I might be reading into it a little too much. This is a really like, uh, you know, maybe there's stuff that's in the movie that I'm not, that I didn't. Well, I mean, about. I think the movie does a better job of kind of setting that up per yeah. se. Uh, because I, I do think that, you know, there are some things regarding the movie that um, in terms of like changes and whatnot, mm -hmm. in terms of pacing and so on and so forth, work a lot better. It's almost like Clive Barker was workshopping his ideas in this book. Yeah, and then like when he finally got to do the movie, he was able to like flesh some things out and be like, oh, okay, this is what I want to do with that. This is what I want with that. It's like the novella was a pitch for the movie. To a degree, yes. Yeah. I mean, obviously, this came out, uh, you know, quite a bit earlier. Well, not necessarily no, that much earlier, if I'm not mistaken. Because I'm, I'm trying to think, when was the first movie yeah. actually... The novella uh, was published in 1986. In a, yes, in and the first Hellraiser movie was like a year later, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, the next year. Yeah, so I could see how, you know, this essentially could be, uh, you know, like... <laughs> Not necessarily like the elevator pitch, but this could be, you know, easily yeah. tied directly into the movie sort of thing. Yeah. And I, I think, I think that's what, I think it's 
that's the part of the issue with the this book, and it's probably a tribute could be attributed that it's a novella, but like the pacing is off in this entire like book. I feel like because basically you you end up with her meeting Frank, and then the very next chapter she's at a bar like the like basically it ends up with like it's like hello Julia, and then the very next like end chapter. Next chapter, she's at a bar basically trying to find her first victim. Yeah. You know, Again, I won't deny that there are some sequences from book and movie that, you know, translate a little bit better to the screen. Uh, one of the changes that I think also works in the movie's favor is uh, that Kirsty is changed from this person who's just more or less kind of like friend zoned by Rory. And in the movie, uh, Frank's brother actually has a daughter and that daughter is Kirsty. Oh, so she's changed from like, you know, this kind of obsessive friend to the daughter. Yeah. So this friend that's like concerned for Frank and wanting to catch Julie in an affair to like, yeah, that kind of makes would make more sense when I think about it. Yeah, she's that like, also uh, helps the the line you know that like kind of identifies Frank at the very end, where it's like "Come to Daddy." Oh, I didn't catch that one. Yeah, I thought it was meant to be more just like he's a pervert, but well, he um, is a pervert in yeah. both uh, things. But, you know, with uh, him wearing basically, you know, the skin of, you know, uh, his brother sort mother, of thing, yeah. you know, now it or her takes on a different context now that yeah. he's saying it to his daughter. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I just, it, like I said, I feel like the, the, maybe I just missed it, but like the, like Kirsty's are the only like motivations that I feel like made any kind of sense. Uh, you know, she's maybe, you know, she's concerned for her friend or whatever. And like Rory just like is well, Rory's just like a wet blanket that like has seemed to like figure out that he's like, all right, my wife doesn't love me anymore for whatever reason. Cause I, I mean, I I'm not fully sure of the, of the timeline, I think it's left intentionally vague. But I believe it's several months after Frank dies. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh yeah, it it seems like it seems like Frank basically disappeared like right after their little like tryst happened. Is is kind of where I'm kind of Oh. You're talking about uh when uh Frank and mm-hmm. Julia were together and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's uh, something that they very much like Frank dips like immediately once it's over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just, like I said, I get like, yeah, she's trapped in this loveless marriage or whatever, but like, and she's bored, but I don't get how that goes immediately to like murder, murder, murder. Just cause she got like, for lack of a better word, dicked down by this, like, man who's, like, apparently a sex god or something. 
I don't know. There's certain themes in this book that just like there's a little bit. You know, I mean, I know it's like 1986. There's a little bit of misogyny going on throughout. There's a oh, is like, that yeah, that's definitely something misogyny that, you thread know. going in throughout this whole book that it's like that's like oh, there's you know, I get it's like told from the point of view with of Frank through a certain for a huge amount, but it's like. Ju- like even when it's like Julia's point of view, it seems like there's a whole lot of like, uh, uh, it, it kind of just you know goes down to that. Um, so, what do you mean? So, I mean, I think I feel like a lot of times there's a lot the the threat of misogyny even like from the. Oh, I see what you're saying. But of, is even occurring in Julia's point of view, like she, she. I'm trying. I'm having trouble forming a thought of, around it, but it's sort of like. Uh, I mean, it's I internalized know. misogyny. A little bit. Saying. I think. Uh, I think just there, there's like a little bit of like the Clive Barker just doesn't seem to like women very much. <laughs> like there's I mean, <laughs> I don't know if I'd go that far on it, but I mean, I can understand what you, yeah, the sentiment you're trying to get across here. I, I do think that obviously it's coming kind of from tiptoe around that, <laughs> but, yeah, um, and it's just, and I think like, that that is partially due to Frank yeah. in this. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, that's where a lot of it comes from. You know what I'm saying? Frank is not a very, he's not big on consent. No, he could care less. Doesn't really as long as he gets what he wants. Yeah, uh, yeah, he's a, and I think that that is maybe something that seems like because uh rory in this you know he seems so vanilla by comparison and yet I, it's more like he's just more of a decent guy he's just a yeah, he's just a guy he's just I, there that's what i don't get like i'd I get it if he was like you know there's some form of like see i think i think i'd understand it more like julia for julia if it was like why she was like looking for an escape if he was like at least like you know, verbally abusive or something, but like instead, it's just like the entire time he's like, she just has this like contempt for him that doesn't seem to like measure up. Hold on a well, I My think that it. I think that it's set up okay. Uh, for those of you who are currently watching, um, first and foremost. Tomorrow is Monday, or I'm sorry, wait, no, tomorrow is Tuesday. Uh, so, of course, the day after that, we will be streaming our normal D&D session on Wednesday. Uh, don't forget to check out tabletoploot.com. Uh, Nerds of Legend have a ongoing deal with them where if you put in the code NOL15 at the checkout, you can get 15% off any of the dice in their store. Uh, they also have a monthly subscription that you can jump in on where it's uh, $25 a month. Uh, and that will get you minimum of four sets of dice each month delivered to your door. Sorry about that. Uh, You're good. I'm home alone with Max. So Max, I heard the doorbell ring and my four-year-old child immediately answered the door. So I had to, I had to run. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So, um, Anyway, where were we? 
Uh, we were talking about uh, Julia's motivations. Yeah, I feel like they're like it's like I don't understand like why this sort of immediate like turn to like murder and sacrifice happens when she's like she's not even in like the book leading up to the whole Frank thing. She's like she's not miserable. She's she's bored. Like she's. It seems like she's kind of, like, home alone in the house all day. Rory works or whatever. And she's she's just bored and immediately just goes to, like, on a killing spree. And, like, I feel like I would have understood a little bit if, like, Rory was, like, the least bit sort of, like mean or something but is he's just well like, if he had been mean he would have just been like frank and i think that that would have just I, I don't think that like him being mean <laughs> would have actually elicited the same kind of reaction like because she might have actually been into that if he was you know what i'm saying yeah, yeah i don't know i uh, i think him being cold in the book at least was very much a better shorthand way of saying like, okay, not only do these two characters contrast, but also she misses what Frank was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I agree that like just... in the book, it's not nearly set up as well as it is in the movie. Okay. And uh, that is something that I will say, you know, that because both book and movie spends a lot of time on, uh, the characters of Frank and Julia. Mm-hmm. And I think that that works the best. I think that like when they made the switch and they focused more on the Cenobites is when everything kind of like went off, off the, the rails. rails sort of thing. <laughs> I've always found Hellraiser is the most effective when it's dealing with the human subjects. Right. It's, it's, I feel like I agree with you there. If like you focus on the, the, the basically uh, the, the Cenobites come down, they're basically like a punishment for like hubris, like, or thinking, you know, or, you know, it's, it's sort of like an Icarus sort of thing, you know, flying too close to the sun and then you get burned. Literally, Mm -hmm. you you know, it's, it's not about, it's about, you know, thinking, you know, it's about selfishness. It's about, they're, they're the punishment. They're not, they should never be the focus. I don't think. They're like, and that's kind of where a lot of the movies that are kind of regarded as you know the worst in the series tend to put their focus and whatnot. Like, oh god, which one was it? Where it was? Um, I mean, the the one that I can think of that is, of course, everyone's like turning point was Hellraiser three, mm-hmm. where Frank and Julia are no longer even in the picture. Whereas, like, it, you know, uh, Hellraiser two, they still kind of are. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in Hellraiser 3, not only are they out of the picture, but now it focuses to the villain really kind of like being Pinhead. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a mistake, in my opinion, because while there is a much more human element behind Pinhead, the focus being Pinhead just doesn't quite work, especially with... Um, they're, meant to be, they're meant to be that like Lovecraftian, like un... You you're not you're not meant to understand them. They're, yeah, they're, you're, you're meant to only see what they. You, you, they're basically not meant to be understood, 
adding any kind of uh, uh, the the sorry the the words are escaping me, but they're not meant to you know like I think that's you know H.P. Lovecraft. You have this sort of thing where they uh, you really only see a brief glimpse of the monsters, you know, the, the and it still is enough to drive you mad. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where you, you, that's what you're getting at. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a good point uh, to kind of like end our analysis at the moment. Uh, you know, we didn't talk too long about this particular one, but it is a shorter book for kind of like a uh, shorter topic. So uh, that's been my and Ben's opinion on the book. Uh, join us Wednesday when we uh, do our D&D game. I've been Brian. That's Ben. I've been Ben. Uh, sorry about that, everyone. I had a home alone today. So Yep. <laughs> and uh, to answer your question, uh, Ava, Brian could probably get all of his dice together and recreate the rose petal scene from American Beauty with them. So that's how many dice he's got. <laughs> a lot of dice. <laughs> but uh, thanks everyone for watching, and we'll catch you again on Wednesday.